welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeological artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last week, we covered the period between 587 BCE and 400 BCE. We looked at Jewish life in Egypt, initially egalitarian and free, but eventually ending in turmoil. And we watched those Jews who remained in Jerusalem rebuild the city and reinvent Judaism as a strictly monotheistic religion of the book. This week, we have a wonderful conversation with Rabbi Matthew Leibel. Rabbi Leibel began his work in Judaism at age 19 when he joined the clergy team at Sherezetic Synagogue in Winnipeg as a Torah reader and bar mitzvah teacher. He went on to earn a degree in journalism, spent several years as a radio sports broadcaster, and later became ordained as a rabbi. He's currently working as a full-time rabbi in Winnipeg. Please enjoy this conversation with Rabbi Matthew Leibel. Thank you for, for being with us, Rabbi Matthew Leibel. Uh, I was hoping that you could maybe just give a little introduction for, for any, anyone listening about who you are and, and a little bit about your background, and then we can, we can chat a little bit about the history. Who am I? Um, <laughs> who am I to you? That is a great question. Because when I think of you, I, I, I think I was your bar mitzvah teacher. And you were. And for you a were. year, a, a lifetime ago. A lifetime ago. And that was when we first met was, I yeah. think, the first bar mitzvah lesson. Yeah. Chatting about, you know, pecan versus pecan. Yeah, we had a few uh, fun moments along the way. Um, I guess I am a rabbi. I am a former radio host. I am... I worked in, I started working in a synagogue when I was 19, teaching bar mitzvah lessons, bar mitzvah lessons, reading Torah. And it grew out of that. And I, I worked in a synagogue while I was a radio host. Like, I have a background in journalism and then kind of hands-on experience for years at a synagogue. And I'm not at a synagogue anymore. I'm, uh, I guess, a freelance rabbi, a rabbi for hire. <laughs> I'm a dad of two young kids, uh, Hugo and Felix, who are almost three and almost one. And my wife Heather is a lawyer, and yeah, I'm I'm so much older and wiser <laughs> than when you first met me, uh, whatever it was, fifteen years ago. And have a a bigger beard too. So <laughs> yes, I I guess I do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a little bit about me. I'm a, a big sports fan, a big music fan, a big Judaism fan, and a big Seinfeld fan. Perfect. As am I. There so you it's go. amazing. And and thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this. And as I was saying before, you know, I think all of those things sort of merge together all your different hats to, <laughs> and will hopefully make this a really, uh, really interesting conversation. Um, so you've, you've listened to the, to the first couple of episodes uh, of the show. Um, and I was hoping to just start off by getting your general impressions, anything that sort of surprised you or stood out to you about, about any of the history that that was covered in those two episodes. Well, I think that, I mean, for me personally, because of my route to working in a synagogue and working in Judaism and the things that I was really focused on, I mean, I've been a Torah teacher and a Torah reader since I was 19. So I would never have described myself as an Orthodox person or even an overly religious person. I skew way more... Um, towards the liberal end of, I think, rabbis. My ordination, my smicha, was from was part of an online program with a rabbi who 
himself is even pro- probably more left leaning than I am. So I, I say this because I never really came at the Torah as if it were the history, but I never really came at the Torah as if it weren't the history. If that makes a little bit of sense, like one of the things you talk about that I really got into as a Torah reader and someone who was teaching Torah was the documentary hypothesis, the idea of the Torah having multiple sources, right? I don't know how many people know that or know specifics about it because it gets very complicated, it gets very tricky. But it was something that I first crossed paths with when I took an elective in my undergraduate at the University of Manitoba. I took a class called Introduction to the Hebrew Scriptures that I thought was going to be a cakewalk AA plus to kind of pad the GPA and do all this. This was long before I even took journalism. I was just taking an arts degree in English. And I was just so fascinated. It gave me kind of a new window into, well, just how quote unquote accurate is the Torah as something historical. And I think you'll want to talk more about that. But there's so much of what you cover that I think the regular everyday Jewish person just has no sense of like they hear Jewish history and they think of okay maybe the Torah they think of stuff like that but I think maybe they think of things that are much more recent but feel very old because they're still several hundred years old but you're talking about stuff that's several thousand years old and I don't think that it's covered in great detail in Hebrew school which both of you and I went through, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that so much of it is eye-opening. I love when you talk about Kashrut was really kind of always there, and Shabbat was really kind of always there. The things that were always there that make sense, but then there's also, you know, how much of Judaism evolved and developed, and one of the best points about just the fact that I think people assume Jews were always monotheistic. That it was always just like God. and No, that was not like that. And then when you know that, and then you read a lot of, for example, the things in the prophets, so many of the uh, Haftorahs that I taught for years and years and years to Bar and Bat Mitzvah students, and you hear these prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah just railing against the people for following other gods, you realize, yeah, a lot of them a lot of them were worshiping God, like the Jewish God, but also local gods. And there was a lot of assimilation. And yeah, it's all of it is just really fascinating. And I don't think super well known to most people. So uh, good on you, Daniel. You've done a really good job. Well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up about just the sort of different time scale, because that was something that to me was a mind shift. Of, and and I, think, I think the collective memory only goes back so far or, or typically only goes back so far. And I think it really is a whole nother ball game when you start talking about Jewish history and realizing that, oh, we're not talking about a couple hundred years. We're talking about a few thousand years. Yeah. Right? And that's very hard for people to relate to. It's, it's just, I mean, we, I think, what you've uncovered... And even in our conversation, we'll touch on things that feel very relatable and very much in the the more things change, the more they stay the same kind of mode. But there's very little about anyone's life 
from 2,000 years ago <laughs> or beyond or farther that we can kind of wrap our minds around and be like, oh, that's like my life now when my oh, my iPhone is down to 2% and I'm scrambling and that's the biggest problem that I've got right now. Like, it's just very, it's just very different. I think you're right. Like, it's not something that people are, um, or, or, or something that people really choose to think about a lot. Yeah. Right? One of the things that I that I think about a lot is compared to my parents' generation. So one generation, how much iPhones, technology has made us live so much in the present, so has made us so impatient, right? You you like in the in the 90s, you see TV shows that throw back to the 90s and people are checking their answering machines <laughs> and they go out and you know like no there was no way of contacting them while they were out for a few hours well now you can contact a- anyone anytime when everyone an instant right and it just uh, our sense of time and and is really kind of messed up so then you throw in it like jewish history from you know 2500 3000 years ago yeah. you start talking about solomon and the first temple and a lot of the things that you talk about are david and it's like, wow, that um, was a really long time ago. A <laughs> really long time yeah, ago. Yeah, like yeah. the year 1900 feels like a really long time ago. Totally. So when you start talking about 1900 BCE, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So t- talking of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, one thing that really made me kind of interested, and, and especially when I knew I'd be talking to you, was... Um, when I read about the Ketef Hinom scrolls and the Birkat Kohanim, um, which we still use, that you you will have said many times, I'm sure, on the Bima, yeah. um, that turns out is thousands of years old. We're talking the time of the you know the kings of Israel, um, and I just found that like kind of a mind blowing thing. And I'm curious what kind of impression that has on you, and does that have some sort of echo of the past like when you're up there and and saying this bracha knowing how far back that goes and how many huge figures in jewish history would have uttered those like same words that you're saying to me it's the coolest i don't know how if that's a technical (laughs) term or a rabbinic term or whatever but i find that to be i would say that I'm very, very proud to be Jewish for many reasons, and that's one of them. I, I, I think about, um, like, circumcision. How long a ri- the ritual of circumcision has been around for. Because, especially for me, like, I've got two sons. We went through that for them. As a rabbi, I witnessed many circumcisions. And... One of the things that one of my teachers used to talk about in, in at a circumcision, I remember specifically, was he borrowed a teaching from um, indigenous people, from First Nations, about, they usually are talking about the environment, but they have this idea of imagining your family line seven generations in the future. And, and just kind of the symbolism of those moments and just like being part of this chain that is so long that like you can't even wrap your mind around like what and and Jews more than seven generations before me were doing that and it and didn't miss it 
Yeah. And it was very, very hard for a long time. So that's something like that. When you talk about the prayer specifically, I used to try and inspire the, my students, um, not so much with, with the priestly blessing. You use the Hebrew, Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing. Yes. I used to talk about a prayer that everyone knows from Hebrew school and uh, Jewish summer camp, which is Aleinu. Right. Aleinu, they say, they, they think was written 2,000 years ago. Um, originally just for the high holidays, but it was like so popular, it became an everyday, towards the end of every service, kind of three times a day prayer. And for something to be around for 2,000 years like that, it's, um, it, I'm really proud of that because who else can say that? Like what other people, what other group of people have things that they have been able to cling to and evolve around, but as they change, they keep certain things constant, like some of the prayers, like some of the rituals. No one, no one can really say that. And it's, um, I think it's the, it's the best and it's the worst because when you have stuff that is that old that's been preserved, sometimes it holds you back from evolving. Sometimes there's, it's very easy to fall into a, we've always done it this way. Look how long we've done it this way for. We can't change no matter what. We can't start changing some of these prayers. We can't start changing some of these rituals um, now after thousands of years. So that can be problematic because I do believe in change and adapting and evolving in, in a lot of situations. But it's also so amazing because it being when you're aware of that, it makes you aware of being something so small and something that's so much bigger than you in a good way that you're you're just part of something that's been around for so long and has survived so much adaptation and change and evolution and for things to matter and and fit so well and stay constant for that long that is that's wild that's totally, totally wild. wild yeah that's how i feel about that yeah and and I'm I'm glad you brought up sort of this idea of things sort of evolution versus constancy and like the relationship between those things, um, because I think there's a lot of that as a thread through this early history of little seeds of things that are the same as as now like the the priestly blessing and the alenu, um, and then there's other things that are seem to be quite different than than the way we do things now and I I've I experienced personally, especially over the past few years, I think there's a lot of lamentation a lot of the time in the Jewish community about change. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if this is something that you've sort of run into, but um, I think there's a lot of clinging to tradition. And I think a lot of the time that's a very meaningful and powerful thing. But what struck me about this sort of diving into this history and I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about this is the fact that I had the impression growing up that Judaism was this like ancient but but never changing thing it was like the it was like the Ten Commandments etched onto the tablets you know onto these stone tablets that mm-hmm. are uh, you know eternal and looking back at the history it really struck me in in a powerful way how dynamic Judaism has been Mm -hmm. and it was something that I never fully appreciated I don't think before I started to 
learn some of this history. Um, and so I'm curious what you think about just the idea of Judaism being this sort of static thing versus dynamic. Well, I think it's very comforting because I think I had that same impression that you did about Jews were a certain way for a very long time and it wasn't until recently that people started questioning, changing, um, choosing what mattered more. Like it was just maybe Judaism was easier or something like that. And I think it's very comforting to know no like humans have always been humans and as much as a lot of people have trouble with change which is why i think they cling to tradition they fear the unknown they worry about what if this doesn't work out we know this way works or at least it works mostly if we do it differently what will what what could happen right um change happens all the time and so it's part of life you uh you have to embrace it, I think, um, and and not try and always be controlling it. So when you, I, I find it very comforting because twenty five hundred years ago, twenty five years ago today, people needed to find ways to make Judaism meaningful and matter in their lives. This is not a new problem. The struggle of making Judaism matter is as old as Judaism itself. And I think that that's very, I think, that, I'll use that word again, I think it's very reassuring because now you all of a sudden feel like, oh, I'm not going, I'm not the first, we're not the first generation of Jews dealing with this. Every generation of Jews has been trying to figure out where do they fit in, right? Starting with where they lived. I mean, you, you, you taught, I found that, there's a part in the podcast where you talk about the Jews in Elephantine mm -hmm. in Egypt versus the Jews in Judea. And that is exactly what happens today, I feel like, on a different scale. I've always had these theories about diaspora Judaism versus Israel Judaism. I've only vis visited Israel twice in my life. I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. But I've always... I've always thought it was crazy that we add, for example, an extra day to every all these major holidays like Passover and Sukkot as almost like a punishment for not living in Israel. And at the end of the Passover, right, like in Israel, the first day of Passover is the big one. Mm -hmm. In Canada, we do two days of Passover. And then it doesn't end on the seventh day. There's a seventh day who is a holy day and an eighth day. It's just like there's this there's this struggle. There's this tension between diaspora Judaism, which isn't like the ideal Judaism, and Israel Judaism. At the end of the Passover Seder, we always say next year in Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm very happy living in Winnipeg next year. Like I'm I I I don't know if it's disingenuous, but I uh, I, I don't. I think it would be cool to have a Passover Seder in Jerusalem, but I want my life, I like my life where it is. And so I'm not at, whereas I think a lot of Judaism always kind of was, at least part of it, was trying to pull people towards living in Israel. And that like the place to be Jewish is living in Israel. And for probably a lot of history, Jews never really truly felt safe in some places. And so I can kind of get that. But that part of the podcast seem, is very, very interesting to me. Because the Jews in Elephantine, I think, felt the way I do about being Jewish in Winnipeg. They were they were in no rush to leave it. They were very comfortable. They were very safe. They were very proud. 
they found a way for Judaism to be meaningful for them, but they made changes. And there was some tension between Elephantine Judaism and Judean Judaism. And that's how you then start having Jews at the same time in different places with different brands of Judaism. Yeah. And I would and I would say that even within sort of local Jewish communities, I think you see a similar di- a similar dynamic playing out where you've got sort of more traditionalist style Jews, I would say. Uh, and then you have often younger, often more liberal, often more secular, um, and more integrated Jews as well. And, and I do see that same interplay that the mm-hmm. Elephantine and Judean Jews had, yeah. even within Winnipeg, um, you know, b- between the parental generation and the, the, you know, the children or between the grandparents and the parents, right? Right. Um, and I see a similar, I see echoes of that, even, even locally. Right. And, and it's because the experiences are very different. You know, my, uh, in 20th century Judaism is so shaped by the Holocaust, by the war, right? Yeah. It was one of, you know, we talk, I talked at the beginning, when you go to Hebrew school, at least the Hebrew school that I went to, that you went to, there are so many stories from early 20th century Judaism that made an impression that I remember versus ancient history Judaism. And my parents' generation, they, some of them, their parents were survivors or they had friends whose parents were survivors. And then you get one generation removed from that and the fears or the concerns or just the general feeling of where Judaism is headed, your experiences are different. You grow up in a very, very different world, um, even just one generation apart. And it totally changes just how willing I think you are to say, ah, that part of Judaism doesn't really resonate with me. Whereas when you go through something that is so catastrophic, you you... You want to cling to all of those traditions and preserve them because you're terrifyingly afraid that they're going to be gone mm-hmm. in the blink of the eye, in a blink of the eye. Um, so I've never, I don't think my contemporaries feel that way. And I don't think, especially in Canada, most parts in Canada, like you live in big cities, urban centers. Yeah, you hear about anti-Semitism in places, but I think most Jewish people are very comfortable putting mezuzahs on their doors. Um you know, it's way easier than ever to um, meet people who aren't Jewish and be part of, you know, the cl- clubs and gyms and places where not that long ago Jewish people weren't allowed, right? It's just, it, it, it's, yeah, when, when two people who are, two groups of people who are alive at the same time have those vastly different experiences when it comes to just how publicly Jewish they can be and how comfortable... Yeah, you're going to have very, very different feelings. And it's probably been like that for a long time. Well, and it, it, it brings up this idea of this cyclical nature of Jewish history because, and I mean, so far, you know, we've we've covered just a few hundred years of the history, but, and there's a lot more to go and it, it, it happens again and again. But even in this short span that we've covered so far, um, we see this cycle of the Babylonians taking over anti-Semitism, trashing the temple, expelling Jews from their homeland and kind of disenfranchising them, right? Mm -hmm. 
you have Jews going to Elephantine where things were okay for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you have mounting tensions and you have uh, anti-Semitism, destruction of the temple, Jews kind of fleeing back to Judea. And of course that cycle carries on and on and, and the Holocaust is just the most recent example of this, this cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that this has been going on for so long, like, does... Is it like a disheartening thing for you or is it almost a like a reassuring thing? How does how do you feel and relate to this whole cyclical what seems to be cyclical nature of of Jewish life? I guess the disheartening part would be is it going are we going to hit a point where Winnipeg, Canada, the places where I feel super safe, where I worked for 6 years on the radio, talked about being Jewish all the time, never once got an anti-Semitic email or tweet or anything like that, which I actually kind of found surprising. Like, is that going to evaporate? Like, that history would suggest that, yes, Jews had a good in Spain for a very long time, and meh, Jews had a good in Germany for a very long time, meh, right? So is that going to... That would be disheartening. Um, but it, But I guess I don't think about it a lot because I have a lot of trouble thinking it's going to happen in my lifetime. And that's pretty selfish, and I also don't even really see it happening in my kids' lifetime, but I don't know. Um, So, yeah, I I guess there is that element of it. But is it possible that that cycle could break? I I suppose it is. Um, the, The other thing, too, is maybe the existence of Israel and Israel's strength and security as a now like 70 plus year established homeland a place that we could always go to if right even when everything was going on in eastern europe there was no israel there was no safe place and i think just knowing you have a safe place even if you never have to go to it makes you feel well, I guess heartened isn't a word, but it feels like the opposite of disheartened, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, and I think that, because for 2,000 years, there was no yeah. safe place. There was no Israel. There was nothing like that. So, I mean, that changes the cycle in a way, too, I think, is just knowing there is an Israel, knowing there is a place that, you know, if, as long as we could get there, get on a plane or, or whatever we needed to do, yeah. um, we could live there and... and be okay being Jewish if something happened yeah in Canada yeah no that's a great point and um you know even even in this conversation like we've kind of used different words I feel like to refer to Judaism we've said Jew Jewish Judaism mm-hmm. and I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on the way that people understand what being Jewish or what a Jew is um because that was another thing that to me Oh, op- the history opened my eyes a little bit. Um, I get the sense that there's this conception among a lot of people, especially in a time like now where identity is like so critical, um, that Judaism, is, I think, is often viewed very much as a religion, by, especially by non-Jewish people. Hmm. Um, it's seen in the same vein as Christianity or Islam or Buddhism. Um, but I think that this history sort of sheds a bit of light on the fact that it's not as simple as that um i don't know if i don't i don't know it's interesting you you say that you don't think 
non you think non Jewish people feel that way. I don't know that I think I don't think Jewish people feel that way. Like I don't think I think most of the people I know who are Jewish being Jewish is a it's different for people in different ways like maybe it's family, maybe it's Israel, maybe it's food, maybe it's songs, maybe it's knowing Hebrew, maybe it's summer camp, whatever. But quite often it isn't God mm-hmm. that they see at the center of their Jewish identity, but their Jewish identity or being Jewish is a huge part of their identity and they're proud of it. Yeah. And we're talking about people who are I, I, like, I don't really have very many friends at all who I would describe as religious at in any degree. Mm-hmm. But the, their Judaism is like a huge part of who they are. So what is that? Like it's one that's another one of those things like the thousands and thousands of years that I'm very proud about for being Jewish that it's not like any other religion. Yeah. It's it's not um it's you talked about being like a people. It's uh it's like in a way it's like bigger than a, a religion. It's it's about a it's about, you know, a a, a cultural group. Mm-hmm. Um it's because Judaism has so many facets to it and people are always trying to find the thing that speaks to them. You know, someone once, I was once in a conversation with somebody who was of my parents' generation who was making a, his point, if I remember, was that, you know, remembering your Baba's gefilte fish isn't enough to keep Judaism going. I've heard this argument before. And I don't know if I really buy that. Yeah. Like, why not? Why can't it be? Why do we automatically dismiss that that could be a powerful memory and a powerful thing that you would want to pass on? Like, why does it have to be... I mean, out of context... I, I, I get the idea that you would need context around it to shape it and be like, what's the gefilte fish for? Like, why do it... When? And who was Baba? That, yeah, right. Right? Right. But I think that it is a, a gateway. Mm-hmm into something way more meaningful than just like a an appetizer type food which was he was kind of trying to dismiss it as being a meaningful connection no i i think that it can be judaism just got so many parts to it that that sort of thing when you mix it with being around for so long i think is kind of inevitable that there's so many layers to it and it's hard to find the thread sometimes of like what is it what's that sort of essence or that indescribable thing that yeah. makes Judaism what it is and it's I, I don't have the I don't know the answer but uh, but it's an interesting question to ask anyway. I, I think that I, I've done I've done a lot of traveling and I would say that Part of it is, it, it, it always seems to come back to a sense of having this global community that even if your specific Friday night and Saturday traditions in your family are, or whatever, or your holiday traditions are different, the fact that you have those same holiday traditions at those same times and use the same main words, right? Your Hanukkah in... Um, California may look different from my Hanukkah in Winnipeg, may look different from some Hanukkah in Buenos Aires, may look like different from someone's Hanukkah in France, but we all have Hanukkah. And so if you were ever in France on Hanukkah, 
you would feel at home with those people celebrating in spite of the fact that they would do it differently from how you did it mm-hmm. right like i think that there is this sense of being a part of all of these years of history and being a part of this people that maybe is at the core of, of what makes it special maybe. yeah well in one pivotal moment that i think and i'm i'm especially given your rabbinic sort of studies i'm i'm interested to hear your thoughts on this but I think one of the pivotal moments in this early history was the destruction of the Second Temple, um, or rather even actually the rebuilding of the Temple after the destruction of the First Temple, and the creation of this sort of portable nature. This is something that Simon Shama talks about, and I talk about in, in the second episode of the podcast, but this sort of transformation from Judaism as like a very temple-bound religion and practice to a much more portable with tefillin and mezuzot and yeah. the Torah and the mazkirim who memorized the whole thing. I don't know how they managed to do that, but, um, but, and you know, it's still quite portable. And as you were mentioning, you know, Hanukkah, there's Jews all over the world and no matter where you are, someone is celebrating Hanukkah and you have these portable traditions. So like, what do you think that did for the religion? And do you think that is going to happen again at some point a transition point like that i don't know about that one i think that it's a good thing though because the sense i get even from just listening to your research is that the temple centered judaism really only worked for a small group of people and when I was working on the radio, maybe this will make sense, um, I learned very quickly, I was working in sports radio, and it was, I, I, I like hockey fine, but if I had my way, I would talk about baseball a lot, I would talk about American football, the NFL a lot, but I learned very quickly that working on a sports radio station in Winnipeg, 90% of your content had to be Winnipeg Jets. 8% had to be the Bombers, and 2% had to be baseball and the NFL. It wasn't about what you wanted, it was about what the people wanted. And just like on the radio, your listeners will tell you what they want to listen to, and they'll turn it off. I feel like thousands, you know, a long time ago, thousands of years ago, a temple-based Judaism, people would have started saying, it's just not working for me. And you want those people to have a Judaism that works for them. So that kind of change, that kind of big transition is a good thing in the big picture, I believe, because just for the argument of what are you going to do? Say, oh, no, sorry, we don't care about you. We're just going to stick with the temple and lose all those people for forever. I don't think you're going to I don't think it's going to work like that. Uh, I think that so to answer to answer the other part of it. If if Jewish people need there to be some kind of shift then I hope that there will be because I see that as keeping Judaism alive I see those transitions those pivotal moments as being necessary not just good but necessary the last thing I I wanted to make sure we chat about um, is I wanted to ask you about this idea, and we kind of, it's almost going for a full circle, we kind of opened with talking about this, but um, about the idea of seeing the Torah as 
sort of the direct word of God. Right. Versus the lens of seeing it more as almost a historical right. piece of writing or a historical document. Um, and I know that, you know, various Jews will have various different sort of beliefs or, or feelings about it. But I, I wanted to share with you something that one of the, um, a Christian historian that I was reading mentioned, I was watching an interview with him and he said this really interesting. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious sort of devout Christian, but I'm also a historian and and he said that I'm interested in learning about the historical Jesus, is what he said from a from an academic point of view. Mm-hmm. But just because that that Jesus doesn't always align with the Jesus of my faith, that doesn't take away from either person. It that it's it's different frameworks or different lenses of viewing the same thing, mm-hmm. and so. I wonder if you think that kind of sentiment or idea might be applied to the Torah. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you see any benefit in seeing the Torah one way versus the other or both. I, I, totally, I totally agree with that, the way you've described it, that sentiment. I think that's how I live. I, I've, I did not grow up in an Orthodox home. I've never really ever had a feeling like the Torah was the direct word of God. Particularly after I really, in my early 20s, was kind of, my eyes were open to this idea of the Torah was a combination of maybe four sources. One where God is this name, what we call yud Hey vav Hey, we say Hashem or Adonai, or this one where it's El Elohim, like that that was fascinating to me it that moment t- totally enhanced my appreciation fascination with love of the torah and the judaism and judaism i think a lot of people would be like oh well it's not the word of god so just throw it in the trash but no 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 that's i never thought i never really thought it was the word of god maybe i didn't consciously ever say this isn't right but First of all, I, I still think that there's room for a lot of those sources to be divinely inspired, mm-hmm. which I, well, one of my teachers, a rabbi, used to say, and I think that's totally fine, like totally great. Um, it just it made it made the Torah more accessible and more real for me. Uh, a Torah that is like ancient and fixed and hasn't evolved and hasn't moved selfishly that's not the torah i want i want a torah that has evolved and isn't totally fixed and does move and has room to move because like a lot of things we've talked about here i think that that gives me hope and comfort for it finding new ways to be meaningful in new generations the line that i was kind of always fed or at least i always interpreted from what i was fed was that it was better for, for the Torah to be something fixed and serious and you can't mess with it or break it because that gives us guidance and that shapes us and that we kind of evolve around, but that gives us a constant, something you can cling to. But no, 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 that's not how I feel. I, 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 I love this idea. First of all, I love this idea of there being some mystery around the Torah, but I also just don't think that my, my brain, the things that I've learned and seen and read over and over again as a Torah reader even, they will not allow me 
to turn off that 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 stuff. Like at the very beginning of the Torah, the first chapter and the second chapter, it is so obvious that there are two accounts of creation, one after another, that are at odds with each other. In one, man and woman are created at the same time. In the next one, man is created and woman from man. It can't be both. It can't be both. It couldn't be both. And then you read like a few chapters later the Noah story. And they they did such a, whoever did it, did such a brilliant job. They talk about redacting. That's one of the big words you hear with the documentary hypothesis of interweaving. How long did it rain for? 40 days and 40 nights? How many kinds of animals? Two of every kind, right? But then why does it say here that Noah brought seven pairs of the clean animals and only two pairs of the unclean animals? Like the Torah is at odds with itself at some place. So rather than just saying, using faith to kind of reconcile those things, that's for me, super unsettling. For most of the people that I've taught and worked with and are in, have been in my congregation, super unsettling. I think it's much, 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 much more accessible for them when you say there were two different stories. There were two different angles. There was this group who thought it went down like that and there was this group that thought it went down like this and neither one was ever going to give in so they tried to find ways sometimes kind of to muddy them together but sometimes they just kind of have their stories. I thought it was fascinating that in Genesis there is a story where Abraham lies about his wife being his sister twice. Once in Egypt, once, once with a fellow named Avimelech. And that Isaac lies about his wife being his sister. Really? It's a lot three, of wife's sister. Three different times? Uh, right? So when I learned that there was this like other angle, that there could have been these combinations, that made the Torah so much more real for me. Though that may seem backwards and, and, and ironic to a lot of people listening or thinking about it, I just, it just, it, it made it, it just made it more something that I could, could work with. So I, I think that that's great, you know, at the same time, then when I would start teaching at, in the synagogue and bringing in some of these ideas and saying, as we've just read here, do we realize that there are two creation stories? How does this make us feel? Like, I never felt that that was heresy. And I never got called a heretic. And I never got said, you're blaspheming God. And it, I think people always kind of said that it was enhancing their study of Torah as well. And if that's not the point, I don't know what is. And I, for one, <laughs> really appreciated that, that part about your, particularly your Torah service, was some of this more questioning and exploring some of those inconsistencies or some of those historical aspects of things that were brought in and for me did make things more real as you say yeah uh, and more interesting well i just i need room to be able to grapple with like i told you earlier um i have to believe in what i'm selling and I needed room to be able to deal with things like reading a line in the Torah that, you know, outlaws male homosexuality. And just like 
never for a second ever feeling personally that way. Um, I I feel that everything. I'm not a big fan of like canceling things or throwing things away. I'm a big fan of contextualizing. Mm-hmm. And I think that even something like the Torah, something so special, something so old, something so powerful and mysterious and wonderful, it deserves to be put in context. We watch a lot of Disney Plus in my house and a lot of the uh, movies that I grew up with the Jungle Book from the 60s. Disney hasn't thrown out the catalog. They have this disclaimer about the problematic depictions of certain um, minorities and the stereotypes that are furthered. And I like that. And I feel like the Torah needs that too. And that I was able to provide that because you can't just let that one line in the Torah be taken out of context and allowed to stand on its own and be used quite often to promote anger, hostility, violence, judgment. You you need the whole story. You need to understand, okay, like, why? Why would there be this line in the Torah about male homosexuality and not female homosexuality? What would have influenced this? What else, what are the other lines around it? Like, don't we owe it to the Torah to figure out some of the answer, to ask these questions, first of all, and then figure out to the best of our ability using our gut and what people tell us and archaeology and research and all these sorts of things to figure out those those answers in the hopes of making that line matter? Because I think a lot of times it's taken out of context and it just, it, it's just, it's backwards. Like, it just doesn't work, you know? I, I know that this... I know that people appreciated that, for example, that specifically, I'm reading it, well, I was getting ready for a Saturday morning, we were going to be reading that line, I thought, what am I going to say here, I can't just let this go, everyone's going to be reading the translation, and if I don't say something, so I, you know, I at the time I was doing some research and I talked about, well, what influences being other cultures where male homosexuality was all about dominance, the Jews at that time, ancient Jews around them, whether they were seeing Egyptians, or whether they were seeing Greeks or Romans, Male homosexuality was never anywhere close to being something about love. And I said, I, I like to think, I believe very strongly that if they had known about the possibility of men loving each other in the same way that a man loves a woman or a woman loves a man, or women love each other, that there would have been a large group of people saying, we can't put that line in there. right? But that just wasn't there at the time. And you don't you don't get to that conversation. You don't get to that unless you open it up and you kind of say, look, we are we just going to throw this line away and therefore the entire Torah with it? Or are we going to have a disclaimer? Are we going to search a little, dig a little deeper? I'm always a big fan of, it may take more work, it may take more time, but it'll always be worth it. Yeah, it'll always be worth it to uh, to, to do the hard the hard work and the hard stuff. And that's one of the things I like, I think, about being a, a rabbi is trying to find ways. Because if you don't, a lot of people will just say, well, then it just, Judaism just doesn't work for me. And I just don't, I don't want people to say that. Yeah, neither do I. And I think that's, that was a really powerful 
way to end, I think, and that's <laughs> and that's the same. That's really part of my goal with this podcast, I think, too, is to to encourage people and and make accessible for people some of these other aspects of Judaism that, as you mentioned at the at the top, were are not as often talked about in Jewish school or in synagogue, mm-hmm. um, and that I think just serve similarly to all of the the things you were talking about about putting things into context i think it really puts this history puts our jewish our whole jewish life really into context um that really can enrich enrich things yeah um i agree with that and i wish you lots of uh luck and success i think you're off to a great start i'm just really excited to have been a part of it thank you for thinking that i would be worthy <laughs> of the jewish story well i'm and so being glad a guest. uh i'm yeah. so glad that you were able to to join me and thanks Daniel. thank you so much hopefully i can have you on again and sure great chatting with you yes you too good luck thank you and thank you for listening to the jewish story Join us next week when we pick up where we left off in the mid-4th century when Alexander the Great and his Greek Empire bring a new order to Judea.